Welcome to the Let's Bond podcast, helping your First Nation reach new levels of success. Now here's your host, FNFA's Director of Business Development, Jody Anderson. Welcome back, everybody, to FNFA's podcast, Let's Bond. This afternoon, we're joined by two guests, two Steves, in fact. We have Councillor Stephen Johnson from Mistawasis, First Nation, located in sunny and very cold Saskatchewan. Welcome, Stephen, also a member of the FNFA Board of Directors. In addition to Councillor Stephen Johnson, we have our COO, Steve Berna, calling in from West Bank First Nation. This afternoon, we are going to be talking about monetization. We're going to learn a little bit about monetization in terms of how does this benefit our First Nations and why should more First Nations be interested in it? So Steve Berna, maybe I could start off by having you just in layman's terms, tell us what is monetization? So monetization is not what you would call a word people use over dinner or probably at any other time, but it's a pretty simple concept that everybody uses in their daily lives. I think you could spend a year traveling across Canada, visiting every First Nation community and and sitting down with chief and council and say, is your infrastructure at the level you would like or are there gaps and are there needs and priorities that have not been met. And I think the unanimous answer would be, we have needs and we have priorities that have not been met. Monetization simply is a way to either build or buy infrastructure that fulfills the community priorities and then pay for the cost of that infrastructure over time. So monetization is do it now, but cover the cost of it over a period of time. And a simple analogy, Jody, would be You don't save up for an automobile or a truck. You don't save up for a house. You simply buy the truck or you buy the car or you buy the house and you use your paycheck to cover the payments over the five-year term of the automobile or the 25-year term of a house. So monetization, build now, but cover the costs over a period of time that chief and council would choose to cover it over. And I guess um, from the First Nations perspective, we are not utilizing uh, the monetization model as efficiently as we as we could. So what's happening in the First Nations today? How are they financing any type of infrastructure? So, so currently, First Nations, and it differs in different provinces, uh, there's certain revenue streams that communities get. Um, Some provinces are more generous than others. Some communities have more economic development than others. But certain revenue streams, after you cover costs associated, there's a certain amount of cash left over. You can take that cash and treat it as a paycheck, and you can borrow against it. So FNFA, when we work with First Nation communities, we do what's called a borrowing capacity calculation, which takes a look at the free cash flow of each community, and we say, what can the community borrow against that? It's called own source revenues. So you're leveraging own source revenues into covering priorities that communities need. Chief and council set those priorities. Uh, the ones that are FNFA members work with us to establish uh, the best terms and the rates so that they can maximize the goals that they have for their community. So currently, Jody, they're using the revenue streams that they have to turn it into community infrastructure needs. Problem is, uh, there's not enough own source revenues. 
and there's a gap uh, that's developed simply because the obligation to cover those infrastructure is not solely with the First Nations, it's outside of their control. Earlier, you had mentioned about uh, talking to First Nations and determining if they have the level or the financing available to adequately address their infrastructure needs. So maybe, Councillor Johnson, from the uh, Mistawasis First Nation, maybe talk a little bit about what the needs are in your community and simply put, do you have adequate financing available to you to address the infrastructure needs in your nation? Just like to um, just do a shout out to all the listeners out there on this podcast. Again, there's a lot of um, things that need to be addressed when it comes to community needs, especially when it comes to the infrastructure that is is dearly needed in all communities, um, from housing to roads to water systems to to uh, sewer needs. Again, our community has been really, we won't say struggling, but had have challenges in addressing the shortages that are needed within what we deem essential service, like roads, like water, like sewer in our communities. Uh, right now, we're actually kind of piloting a few projects that are that we've been set up in the area of water. Right now, we've had probably going on 15 years now, just trying to figure out how can we get usable, drinkable water to all our community members, while at the same time uh, addressing the 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 expense of getting that to the to to our members. Again, we had to have bottled water being shipped in from the cities, which was an economical. Uh, we had a water treatment upgrade where it only supplied um, good quality drinking water to maybe, uh, say, 40% of the community. Recently, we had another uh, water plant upgrade that actually could service the whole community, but again, lacking infrastructure to connect the rest of the community to actually put everybody in that same boat. So again, there is a lot of infrastructure gaps within our own community when it comes to just water. We're also talking about accessibility and safety of our community and uh, access to our community has always been an issue. Again, we are situated uh, in between city centers like Prince Albert, North Battleford and Saskatoon. We're just about in the middle but more on the north end. We're probably about an hour and 15 north of Saskatoon, uh, roughly an hour east of, of North Battleford and about an hour west of Prince Albert. Uh, again, all those areas to access um, that have highways, they have good highways that can actually get us there. However, when we come to the community, we're back to gravel, dirt roads. Again, we've had issues regarding safety, having our ambulances coming out to the community where um, we had, unfortunately and tragically, one of our band members had passed because our the ambulance couldn't get to the house because of poor roads. Again, um, those are issues that we are trying, are trying to prioritize and we have prioritized, but 
it, it is very discouraging when you don't have the resources or the own source revenue or the ability to actually develop those that, that those roadways and communities. So again, the infrastructure gap is huge for our community, and I can only imagine other communities. Who uh, and unfortunately too for our community, we're not plopped on an area where we have we're close to a city center. We aren't. We we don't have um, um, oil in our backyard. Our only major asset in our community is our land and our people. So trying to build an economy to try to satisfy uh, those needs of our people, safety, just creating an economy for a community is very challenging because we are lacking those infrastructure needs. And I, um, I won't even go into the communication side, cell phone, all those. Like, those are needs that our community really has to have in order to be a part of the economies to be a part to be put on a uh, level playing field as the rest of the uh, of our neighbors that are are in close proximity to us who have lower population than than uh, than what we have currently in our community. Absolutely, all good points, Councillor. And you you mentioned a couple of you know critical points in terms of safety, access to your community. And all that lends itself to building healthy, safe communities, which is really what we're focused on developing and delivering to all of our First Nations right across Canada. Uh, recently, you were telling me that the temperatures had dropped so significantly that the schools had to be closed. And some of your educators actually have to come from outside of the community. And without having safe access to the community, it actually impacts some of the ability to educate a lot of the kids in your community. So simple things that uh, many of us take for granted, like paved roads and safe roads, actually have quite the detrimental impact um, to a lot of nations, not, not just in Saskatchewan, obviously, but right across Canada. You also mentioned monetization in the in the sense of closing that infrastructure gap and Mr. Wasis alone you're right does have an infrastructure gap Steve Berna maybe I can ask you to let's talk about what that gap looks like and from the community perspective what what type of numbers are we looking at you know Jody if I could pull out a number uh and put, hang a hat on it I think would also wow if you ask 100 people, you're going to get 100 different answers on the, what the number is uh, for a couple of reasons. One is there's never been a full study on what it would take to bring First Nations infrastructure up to the average of communities next door or just communities in general. A study a number of years ago estimated it at $30 billion. $30 billion is probably outdated uh, for a couple of reasons. One, costs of construction have gone up, inflation has gone up, and population in the communities has gone up. So when you take a look at whether it's $30 billion, $60 billion, or even above that, you have to take into account that First Nations are not growing in population-wise at the Canada average. They're growing above the average, which means the housing needs five years ago are not the housing needs of today. So at a minimum, the study a number of years ago said 30 billion. I would suggest 
This is my own personal point of view. That's probably north of 60 billion, but there is no definitive number. Uh, all I know is the needs are greater than what I think people believe they are. I think uh, the current method, the pay-as-you-go system, isn't going to allow us to close that gap nearly as fast as we need to. And to your point about the growing population and the demographics of our First Nations or Indigenous people right across Canada, we may actually look at widening the gap if we don't start thinking outside of the box. And so... On to my next point of how do we make um, monetization a reality and what is FNFA recommending that we can table as a potential solution for our nations? Steve Berna. So I'm going to give a bit of a history lesson on this one. Um, You have to go back to World War II. Not that we were around then, but if you take a look at World War II, because before that point in time, you had a situation in Canada where Canada as a federal body, the provinces as provincial bodies and local governments all did the same thing. They all did save up cash and pay for things. Then you had this amazing thing after World War II called the baby boomers. The baby boomers were a parallel to what First Nations are experiencing, huge population growth. And so at that point in time, you had a rethinking, not just at the provincial level, but also at the local government level. And the rethinking was, if we are going to keep our infrastructure and the needs of our people in our geographical area in a healthy way, we've got to change. So provinces and municipalities changed from what they called the cash method, which you mentioned, which is put money aside and when you have enough cash, pay for something. You and I would all be driving four-wheel drive pickup trucks if we uh, still had provinces and local governments that did cash method because the road would be paved, then it would go to dirt. Then it would be paved and would go to dirt. There simply wouldn't be enough money each year to cover the needs. So what did the provinces and local governments do differently? They changed. And they went to a method where they borrowed to meet their priority needs on infrastructure for each year. And they would pay for that borrowing over 25 or 30 years, monetize. They basically monetize, local governments monetize property tax collection and other fees. Provinces monetized provincial sales taxes, uh, payroll taxes, etc. 150 years later, uh, the federal government still has not changed. They still have annual budgets and they take a look at what they can do with that annual budget The problem is, if the annual budget is not growing at a pace equal to or above the growth of the needs of infrastructure, you fall behind. So it's the very method that Canada uses to pay for infrastructure, which is a cash method, far outdated. Nobody else does this, which has led to the infrastructure gap not only being $30 billion, but probably north of $60 billion, and it's increasing. So what can we do? We need to convince Canada that a model that was used for a long, long time, now needs to be replaced. And that means we need to change political thinking and we need to change bureaucratic thinking. It's time that Canada, if they're serious about reconciliation, if they're serious about closing the infrastructure gap, as they mentioned, they have to change course and they have to do what local governments and provinces have done for 80 years, start borrowing, build it at today's cost, and pay for it over a term 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, something that keeps their budgets healthy, but close the gap because you can't 
ever close the gap when the cost of the infrastructure is rising faster than the budget dollars in Canada. It's got to change, Jody. Absolutely great point. So a model like this could actually be used to address a lot of the communities who are still very heavily reliant on diesel. If we look at um, trying to monetize or trying to replace, this could be a potential solution for something like that, correct? Absolutely correct. So there's a couple of things that if I was a federal government, I'd say, okay, I do not want to happen two things. One, I don't want to build so many projects that I'm overloading the ability for contractors to build. I don't want to overload the ability for the suppliers of wood, et cetera, to supply because then that causes other problems. Diesel is a special case though. You're already as a federal government paying 65, $70 million to buy the diesel every year. So it's already a budget item. If you stop buying the diesel, and you take that 65 or $70 million and you borrow against it, in other words, use it as a paycheck, you could probably borrow seven, $800 million, service that seven or $800 million with the 65 to 70 million a year, pay the principal, pay the interest, and remove communities that are on diesel power, put them into clean energy. It's almost a non-budget item, but again, it's a change of thinking. So diesel's a special case, and it's an easy one because it's not going to cause the federal budget to be impacted. It's simply repurposing the monies currently spent on diesel. Interesting. And just going back, uh, we talked a little bit about provincial and other municipalities, and monetization is actually used uh, as a model. This is not something that's new to government, but it already exists. It, would that be correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, Ontario borrows approximately $40 billion a year. And they take that $40 billion, and some of it is, a small amount of it is because they run a deficit on operations. But the majority of it is through community planning. And community, I say, which is the province of Ontario. So any community uh, knows it's going to grow. Population is going to get bigger. The needs are going to get bigger. First Nations are no different. They do planning as well. So... In Ontario, they take that $40 billion, whatever's left after covering the deficit and operations, and they choose which projects should go forward to meet the needs of the population in Ontario. Canada needs to do the same thing with First Nations. Find out what the needs are, put money aside, and start covering the gaps that exist and start closing the gaps. So it, it's absolutely a common approach. Wonderful. Councillor Johnston... If we looked at doing monetization for Mr. Wasis, what would this mean to your community? Well, we had discussions regarding monetization uh, years ago. We had a project that we uh, we wanted to push forward. It was a kind of a Health Canada idea, but at the same time, um, we needed to expand our health clinic because of staffing needs, because of community needs. We were just being overloaded. We're losing space because um, the services that were required. So in the end, we had a discussion and we had a discussion with the, we'll call them the the RDG of the day. I won't mention any names, but um, the RDG of the day where we had had a discussion regarding if we were able to utilize our FNFA to actually build this facility the, the the addition that we would be able to possibly do this over a 10-year period 
to actually build this uh, facility, but utilize the government dollars to actually pay for it. The tough thing was was getting that commitment letter because, again, governments are based on four-year projections, based on their 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 term of office. Again, our community is kind of looking that way too. When 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 we say we don't want to commit too too much, but we've already we've already dove into that. But when we talk about committing dollars that are beyond our, our terms, beyond our mandates, we're, we're impacting uh, the future leaders, the future generations moving forward. But at the same time, if we're able to implement a community uh, development or community plan that addresses and has consultation with the community members to go that direction then i guess we we would be on side but again as first nations we, we we also need to change our way of thinking because again a lot of first nations have been under the indian act for many many years have been told how to do business and what what to do but as we grow and develop uh, as nations as our capacity grows and develops we're starting to like, like you mentioned, uh, think outside that box. And um, that was a good idea that, that we could have done. And we, we um, but unfortunately, time had ran out uh, for that idea. And there had been changes made uh, from the government to um, basically put a halt on that idea. So as of today, we're still needing that space for a health clinic. And that was probably eight years ago. So again, uh, infrastructure gap is real. We need to actually start taking a look at um, when we talk about own source revenues. Our economic development arm is is starting to gain some legs, but it's not fast enough. I had mentioned um, the cost of inflation, especially with the world pandemic and possibly on the brink of uh, a World War III. We know that there is going to be drastic costs that are going to be impacting all, all, all prices straight across the board. So again, as we move down this road, priorities are going to be shifting from not only our community, but also from a provincial and federal federal priority, especially when, um, when the, uh, the lives and the freedoms of our countries are, are in jeopardy. Thank you, Councillor. I really appreciate your comments today. It's been a pleasure to have you as a guest on our podcast. Uh, Steve Berna, just a couple closing closing thoughts in terms of call to action for our First Nations and our listeners that are out there. What is and what can the First Nations do today to help move this monetization model and the efforts forward so that we can really start making a dent in this in this gap? I think the first thing is is people talk about a gap, but we also on this episode indicated we're not sure what the gap is. So it would be wonderful, and I, and I think Councillor Johnson, this community has done it very well. They've listed their priorities and they listed their needs, and and they have a pretty good idea of what those costs to fulfill those needs would be. If you had some statistics on what that was, and you added up all the nations across Canada. I think then you have a real number. And then, Jody, you have two choices. Either Canada and the provinces find 
different revenue streams to start sharing with the First Nations because then they can treat those new revenues as own source revenues and borrow against it to help close their own gaps. But if that's not an approach that Canada or the provinces want to take, the next approach is working with Canada to put into the budget a line item that dedicates a certain amount of money each year, let us borrow for the communities, and that line item in the Canada's budget will pay the loan costs on those. So two approaches, but the federal government has said by 2030 they want to close the gap. Uh, time is moving. So share new revenues, which can be leveraged into infrastructure needs, or Canada, prepare a budget line item and keep it in the budget for a long time to help close the gap going forward. We are preparing uh, a group of communities, chiefs and councillors, to come with us to Ottawa uh, to talk about the needs with certain ministers, hopefully the Prime Minister's office also. So it is a political push, it is a bureaucratic push, but it also could be a revenue sharing push as well. Thanks, Steve, and thanks for your comments today. Gentlemen, thanks very much for joining us on FNFA's version of Let's Bond. For all of our listeners, thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to know more about monetization, please contact us at info at fnfa.ca and we would be happy to discuss with you and your nation. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Have a good day, everybody.